Hey, Scott here with Grace Bible Church. Before we get into this message, I just wanted to thank you for streaming this sermon. We pray that each week you are challenged by who God is and what he has done for you. Now, this is never meant to be a substitute for you to be an active member of a community of faith. If you live in the Hollidaysburg area, or if you're in town for any reason, we encourage you to gather with us on Sunday mornings for our word and worship. You can learn more about what God is doing through our church body on our website, gbclive.org. This is part five of six in this series on Paul's letter in Titus. You can find the first four parts in our sermon archive, gbclive.org. There are no handouts today. Uh, feel free to jot down whatever you find helpful. I'm also happy to send you my notes after the fact. Um, more than happy to just send you my um, sermon notes. I have pretty extensive notes. I said this in the early service, a little, you know, peek behind the curtain. Part of the practical reason I don't do sermon notes, so if like every time I'm preaching and you're like, why is there no sermon notes? Uh, part of the practical reason is my sermon's not usually done until pretty late on Saturday night. So there's really <clears throat> no way to t- turn that around in, in a way that's helpful. So um, <clears throat> if you would like kind of follow-up stuff, happy to send that to you. Titus is all about people who are shaped by the gospel. So you've seen that, gospel-shaped people up on the screen. The title of today's sermon is Gospel-Shaped Life. All right, so we're going to talk about gospel-shaped life. We're in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. I will read it in the English Standard Version. It will be up on the screens. I encourage you to turn in your Bible if you have one, navigate to it on your device if that's what you're using, and we can look at this together. Verse 11 of Titus 2, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Let's pray. Father, we come to you today. We are humbled to be gathered in your presence. We are amazed at your grace that is for us, that rescues us, that empowers us. Father, we know that you are a God who is infinite in wisdom. You are infinite in power. You are not lacking in anything. We are not dependent. You are not dependent on us, but we are dependent on you in every way. And so we ask as we look at this text, as we see what you have for us in your word, that your spirit would draw out the things in our hearts that are not like you, that are contrary to you. I pray that you would encourage us with the good news of who you are and what you've done. I pray that your church would be strengthened, your people would be encouraged, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So one of my favorite things about summer is hanging out with my kids. 
so my guys are starting school tomorrow. I know a lot of people are starting school this week. Uh, that's actually one of my least favorite things about summer is that it comes to an end, so I don't get as much time with my kids. So uh, one of the things that uh, my boys and I were able to do this summer was build Bluetooth speakers. So kind of had this uh, plan, and the boys were wanting to do it, and I was like, hey, we should try this. And so essentially, you can buy the components, the electronic components, and then you make the, the housing out of wood. So that's what we proceeded to do. So that meant that the boys were learning uh, some new skills. They were learning some table saw skills. So dad was cringing a little bit with that. Uh, but we, we kept all our fingers, so that's a plus. Uh, learned some router table skills, so, uh, and along with some other things. So basically, uh, learning to do some things that they hadn't done before. And so as I was thinking about that in terms of tying things in with what we we're talking about today, uh, imagine if I took the boys out to the shop, you know, showed them how to use a table saw, taught them how to keep their fingers, make the cuts, you know, here's a router table, this is what a box joint jig is, this is how we're going to use it. So I tell them all that stuff, and they say, all right, you know, that's it, then we go back in the house and never use it. You're like, well, Dad, like, why did you show it? Oh, I just wanted you to know. Um, yeah, but we want to make something. Like, oh, yeah, we're not really going to make anything. You, it'll just be good for you to know. That wouldn't make any sense, right? That'd be pretty pointless. Uh, you learn things like that in order to put them into practice, in order to use them. So learning to use tools but never using that knowledge to, to make anything or to build anything or to uh, do anything with it is kind of like realizing that the gospel is true, believing it, but never seeing how that same gospel empowers your daily life. Not seeing the connection between the two. And actually, that's much worse than some knowledge of how to use a table saw that you never use. Because that kind of gospel is not the biblical gospel. If we have a gospel that rescues us but doesn't empower us for daily life, that's not the gospel of Jesus. So here's the main idea to wrestle with today. So, uh, you know, if you want to jot something down, this is going to guide our whole time together. This is the main idea. So big picture. The gospel reveals grace that both rescues us and empowers us. Amen. I'm going to say it again. So if you want to write it down or jot it, kind of just burn it in your brain. All right? The gospel reveals grace that both rescues us and, capital letters, all caps, capital and, empowers us. We have arrived, verses 11 through 15 in Titus chapter 2, like I said, this is part 5. We have arrived at what is arguably the theological center of the book of Titus. Okay, so... Everything in Titus really hangs on what Paul's going to say in verses 11 through 15. Every time we've talked through Titus, I've tried to give you the big theme. All right? So the big theme, you would sum up Titus in one theme, kind of the whole letter, would be that God's grace revealed in the gospel leads to godliness in the lives of his people. All right? God's grace revealed in the gospel leads to godliness in the lives of his people. Nowhere do we see that clearer than in our text today. And in fact, I think this is one of the clearest places in the New Testament that we see the connection between 
Christ's work on the cross and our daily obedience. One of the clearest places that we see that connection. We all need that. Every single one of us has a daily life that we are living. But depending on how we come about that is going to depend on how we live either as Christians or not as Christians. So if you're not a Christian, perhaps you have rejected the gospel or you've like, that's not for me. That's not, you know, I've heard it. Fine. That's not, I'm not buying into that. Uh, or maybe you've never heard the gospel. Perhaps you're here uh, for the first time or maybe uh, you're visiting with someone. You've never heard the gospel. My prayer for you leading up to today has been that today will be the day that you respond in repentance and faith to the good news of Jesus. Along with that, my hope is that this rescuing grace and this empowering grace that we talk about today is compelling for you. Because this doesn't mean we have an easy life as Christians. This doesn't mean, hey, we believe in Jesus so everything is great. In fact, oftentimes it's the opposite of that in the here and now. Christian, I think we can get trapped into missing how the gospel that we believe for our eternity is connected to our obedience on a Tuesday afternoon or a Friday morning or maybe a Sunday afternoon. So I want to remind you today of what actually powers you to obey. Because obedience matters. Okay, we've been saying that all through Titus. Godliness matters. And if we get this wrong, at best, we end up heaping guilt and burdens on each other or on ourselves. And these are guilt and burden and shame that Jesus has already taken away at the cross. So that's at best. At worst, if we get this wrong, we miss the gospel. So good works matter profoundly, but not just any good works, gospel-fueled good works. All right, we said godliness. That's what Paul's been talking about in Titus. All right, so Paul does something in chapter 2 that he doesn't typically do. So typically when Paul's writing, he's, he's writing, he's going to lay out the theological groundwork of, okay, this is the, the, the theological reality, this is the truth. And then he says, okay, based on that truth, this is how you live. Right, so this is how you apply it. He does that in most of his letters. Here in Titus 2, he actually flips that. Okay, so in uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, you see those practical snapshots of sound doctrine played out. We looked at that last time, all of those relationships, uh, older men, older women, younger men, younger women, all of those connecting in the body and then outside the body. Uh, so he laid out that practical outworking snapshots of sound doctrine. And now in verses 11 through 15, he is going to give the soundest of doctrine that he could possibly give. Verses 11 through 15 is the engine that makes the Christian life go. You can't have relationships like verses 1 through 10 without the sound doctrine of verses 11 through 15. It's not possible. Apart from God and what he has done for us in Christ, 
We're not going to put others before ourselves. We're not going to lay down our preferences. We're not going to seek someone else's good. Apart from the gospel, we cannot have a healthy church. Apart from the gospel, you and I cannot, cannot, cannot live the Christian life. And we know that. I'd say at least for the most part we do. But I'm not sure we know that like we think we know that. So Paul does something here that I didn't see until I looked at this this week. It's, I love the way he arranges this text. So we read verse 11 and you see grace that appears. And that's the first coming of Christ. And he's going like, to unpack that when we get to verse 14. Grace that appears, first coming. In verse 13, you've got glory that will appear, which is the return of Christ. But in between those two appearings, you've got textually, in verse 12, and actually, like in this present age, this thing we call the Christian life. Do you want to know how to actually live the Christian life? I hope so. This is it. The Christian life, the good life, ultimately good life, is based on the sound doctrine of verses 11 through 15. So here's the main idea again. The gospel reveals grace that both rescues us and empowers us. That and really is the key to this text. Rescuing and empowering. Because Christians know we have rescuing grace. That's what makes us Christians. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast, which is awesome. That's rescuing grace. But then in the very next verse, verse 10, Paul writes, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We often stop at rescuing grace and we miss the empowering grace of the gospel. We miss the connection between rescuing grace and empowering grace. Here's the connection. Rescuing grace is empowering grace. And that's really good news <laughs> for us. So main idea, one more time. That way you get tired of it, okay? That way you walk out of here being like, he said that so many times. The gospel reveals grace that both rescues us and empowers us. So the question then becomes, what does that look like? What, 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 how does that show up in the Christian life? If this is all about the Christian life, what does the Christian life look like 
when rescuing grace is empowering grace. So I got three patterns for you. So if you want to write these down, if you're a note taker, these are the three main points. Um, these are the three patterns. Pattern number one, and they all start with rescuing grace. So if you're like me, you might have to write that out every time if that's the way your brain works. If you're not like me, you can write a heading and then you can write bullet points underneath. So uh, they all start with rescuing grace. Pattern number one, rescuing grace empowers us to continually repent. Pattern number two, rescuing grace empowers us to intentionally obey. And then pattern number three, rescuing grace empowers us to expectantly wait. This is the Christian life. Continually repent, intentionally obey, expectantly wait. But you cannot do these things apart from the work of Christ on your behalf. You cannot do these things in your own power. We often try, don't we? But we are unable to do that. You're actually unable to live the Christian life apart from empowering grace. And you'll feel frustrated. You ever feel frustrated in your Christian life? Me too. That's why this is so big. <laughs> That's why this is so huge for us to wrap our minds around. So with that massive introduction, here's pattern number one. Okay, I really want to set the stage for you so you understand where these fall. Pattern number one is rescuing grace empowers us to continually repent. Verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And we'll stop there for now because there's, you know, verse 12 is going to get us into a lot, but there's a lot to kind of tackle right here. So Paul starts with a conjunction for. And so one of the things that's harder maybe for us to remember, but you got to keep in your mind is that even though uh, we split these passages into two sermons, like the first part of chapter two and the last part, uh, and in some cases, multiple weeks between the two, this is all one thought. Okay, so, so chapter two, all one thought that Paul is, is writing. So that four clues us into the connection with what has just, he has just said about the relationships within a healthy church, within the body of Christ in, in verses two through 10. It's only because of the grace revealed in the gospel that those relationships can happen, right? And, that, and, and so here's the theological basis for that is verses 11 through 15. So let me give you a, kind of like a, a quick definition of grace because we're going to throw grace around a lot, right? We talk about grace. We sang a lot about grace today, which is awesome. Our church is named Grace Bible Church, right? So probably a good idea to have an idea of what grace is. So here's kind of the quick definition, all right? Grace is God at work in those who don't deserve it, right? God at work in those who don't deserve it. So rescuing grace is God's work specifically through Christ and what Christ did on the cross that is given freely to sinners who believe. That's what we mean when we're talking rescuing grace. It's grace that rescues sinners from their sin. Empowering grace, because we're, we're connecting the two, right? Empowering grace is when the Spirit takes rescuing grace and applies it to the life of the people of God. And what I want to help you see is that's that's happening, and it's going to happen because of what Christ did on the cross. 
It's not a, hmm, wonder if that's going to happen. This is the kind of grace that brings salvation for all people. So I want to park here for a second because um, I'm going to wrestle with what, what that means. The NIV trans, translates it, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. The NLT translates it, for the grace of God has been revealed, bringing salvation to all people, so similar to the ESV. The New King James says, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Okay, so the literal wording of the text is the grace of God appeared saving all men. So the question then is, does this mean that all people will be saved? So that idea is universalism, right? That uh, all people eventually will be saved apart from uh, belief in the gospel or apart even perhaps from hearing the gospel. Uh, so universalism is not taught in the New Testament, okay? That's not something that the New Testament teaches. In fact, the New Testament is very clear that only those who repent of their sins and believe the gospel of Jesus will be saved. Over and over and over again, that's what the New Testament teaches. So, if it doesn't mean that the grace of God appeared saving all people, if we know that all people aren't saved, what does this phrase mean? So I remind you, words do not exist in a vacuum, right? Uh, meaning is determined by context. So you guys know this to be true. You could use the same word in two different contexts, and it means two different things. Scripture must be interpreted in context. For whatever reason, uh, we're really, really quick to just not even consider context when we think about Scripture, even though in our daily conversations we consider context all the time. So there's a lot of details here and a lot of nuance, but without getting into all of that to just kind of uh, give us a springboard here, I believe what Paul is saying when he says the grace of God that appeared bringing salvation for all people is that salvation is brought to all kinds of people. And I think there's two main reasons why I think that's the case. And so there's more than this. So if you want to have a conversation, happy to do that. But here's the two main reasons why we say that. Number one is the immediate context in Titus 2. Okay? Remember, we just came out of this section in verses 1 through 10 where he's talking about relationships across different groups of people. Older men, younger men. Older women, younger women. Slaves, masters. And then he ended that section in verse 10. Verse 10 ends with, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. And then verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Right? So one thought continuing that idea of there were all kinds of people that needed the gospel in verses 1 through 10. And hallelujah, we have a gospel that is for all kinds of people. So that's reason number one. Reason number two really is the broader context of the pastoral epistles. So the pastoral epistles are 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus. Uh, the first two written to Timothy, who was a pastor in Ephesus. Uh, this one written to Titus, who was in Crete. One of the issues in Ephesus, where Timothy was, was this elitism. This kind of like, uh, you have to be of a certain class for the gospel to be for you. Perhaps a certain ethnicity for the gospel to be for you. Or you have to be of a certain understanding or intellect or whatever the case may be. 
Which is why in 1 Timothy, Paul says, you need to pray for your secular rulers. You need to pray for the Gentiles. So often when we read a text like Titus 2.11, we can kind of think immediately to things like, you know, well, does God save all people? Or, you know, we think about things like election or predestination or those kinds of things, or maybe the lack thereof that we see in this text. And we kind of forget about the context of what he's actually getting at and what he's addressing. So Tim Chester puts it this way. God does not save all people, but he does save all kinds of people. So we all need to live in a way that commends the gospel to all kinds of people. So a quick application here for us. Are we living in a way that commends the gospel to all kinds of people? Maybe even people who aren't like us in one way or another. I think this is actually some of the power of the relationships that Paul unpacked in verses 1 through 10. Older men need to be saved. And we have older men that believe the gospel. Older, younger men need to be saved. And we have younger men that believe the gospel. Older women need to be saved. And we have older women. That, you, you get the idea. Employers who aren't fair need to be saved. Elected officials that we disagree with need to be saved. Do we pray earnestly for the salvation of all kinds of people? Do we realize the beauty of the gospel of God? It does not make a distinction between Jew or Gentile anymore, which is really the entire context of the New Testament. The mystery that's been revealed is that the gospel is not just for a certain segment of the population. It's now for all people, which is awesome. Glory to God. So that's the grace of God that has appeared. So let's look at verse 12, because this gets us into our continual repentance. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Ungodliness is godlessness, which is really the root of all of our sin, like the absence of God or the opposite of God. And then worldly passions is kind of like the fruit that flows from that godlessness. So you've got kind of like the root of the sin and the fruit. All through Titus, we've seen that godliness characterizes the Christian life. So then to say ungodliness is like to draw that stark contrast between the two. Ungodliness would be anything not fueled by the gospel. So if godliness is fueled by the gospel, ungodliness is fueled by all kinds of other junk. But notice... In verses 11 and 12, what trains us for this pattern of life is grace. It's grace that trains us to both renounce the root of sin and the fruit of sin. To deny it. To refuse it. To disown it. The language is strong here. To run from it. To turn from it. The Christian has no business dabbling with anything ungodly. So this is not a one-time thing. When you become a Christian, it's like a one and done. This is a pattern of life as a Christian. 
The biblical word for this kind of pattern is repentance. It's a change of heart and a change of mind. It's a whole heart reorientation. Hear me on this, because I think sometimes we mistake repentance for just being sorry for our sin. And we got lots of kids in here of varying ages. Um, Kids, you don't have to answer out loud or raise your hand, but have your parents ever said to you, if something happens between you and your sibling or you and someone else, like, go tell them you're sorry. Wait, come here. Go tell them you're sorry. What happens usually in that situation? I'm sorry. You're not sorry. Typically, right? You're saying sorry because your parents said you had to say sorry, right? I do that too, okay? I use that parenting tactic. I'm not saying it's good, right? But give us some grace, kids, right? Because what we are we really trying to do is we're trying to get you to come to grips with your sin. <laughs> we're trying to get you to wrestle with repentance, okay? So it's easier to say, tell them you're sorry. I like to think, you know, tell them you're sorry, handle that situation, right? But that's, <laughs> that's not generally how that goes. We're talking wholehearted reorientation is what repentance is. So if behind every sin is a lie about God, then repentance is going to look like reorienting and changing my view of who I think God is and what I think God has done for me. There is a line of thought, particularly in American evangelicalism, I would say, that says you simply need to believe on Jesus to be saved. That there is no repentance necessary for salvation. That there is no heart reorientation necessary. You just simply mentally assent, mentally acknowledge the gospel. That there's no obedience that needs to follow for salvation to be legitimate. And I just want to tell you that is a false gospel. That is a gospel that's stripped of its power. That is not the gospel of Jesus. It simply does not wrestle with what the New Testament has to say about salvation. It disregards texts like Matthew 3.8 and Luke 6.45. And we don't have time to go there or read those. But perhaps most clearly, it disregards texts like James chapter 2, verses 14 to 17. So let me read this for you. You don't have to turn there, but you're welcome to if you want. James 2.14 to 17. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, kind of like, good luck, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So let me be clear, we are not saved by what we do. We are saved by faith in who God is and what he has done. So we we get that. But faith that doesn't result in continual repentance, realizing you're still sinning, and we're going to see intentional obedience is not saving faith. It's dead faith. And dead faith doesn't save. So for those of you that consider yourself to be a Christian, I would put 
probably most of us in this room in this category. For those of you that consider yourself to be a Christian, consider with me. You consider yourself to be a Christian, but your sin doesn't seem like that big of a deal to you. And you don't give much thought to the people around you. And dying to yourself and your own preferences is the last thing on your mind. And you're not at all concerned with obeying the commands of Christ. If that describes you, you either misunderstand the gospel or you're not a Christian. In either case, there's good news because the way forward is the same. And it's repent. It is turn from, change your mind about, change your heart orientation about your selfishness, about your pride, about your arrogance, about any other thing that is opposite of God. And put your faith in Jesus, the one who has come to redeem and purify, to offer salvation to anyone who believes. If rescuing grace empowers continual repentance, what does that look like? How does that show up? I'll just try to help, help you see this. It's hard to do in this setting, but let me try to unpack this a little bit. It looks like uncovering sin that's rooted deeply in our hearts. It looks like not settling for fruit-level conversations. It looks like honest, difficult heart work, oftentimes around the table with other Christians. Instead of, well, I just got to stop being angry, the question becomes, why am I so angry? What is making me angry? Instead of, I just got to try to be less prideful, like, it looks like, why every time that situation comes up does my pride show itself? And you begin to analyze at the root level rather than just at the fruit level. And that can seem like a subtle shift, but it has massive implications for how you live the Christian life. When you eat a cookie that you weren't supposed to eat because company was coming over. Or you hit snooze repeatedly in the morning when your spouse is trying to sleep. Or you rush bedtime with the kids so you can get to Hulu. Or you argue over a scheduling conflict. I did all of those things this week. I was, and as I was saying that in the early service, I, I rem was reminded that I didn't actually eat the cookie this time. But I wrestled with it, and I thought about it, and we had an argument about it, and I realized there was more going on in there than I had wanted to even think about. It doesn't mean that all of that stuff is always bad, but here's the point. It's never about the cookie or the alarm 
or the bedtime or the schedule. It's about what's going on in my heart in the middle of those things. The grace of God is that he uses cookies and alarms and schedules and things to bring out the idols of our hearts. We have to fight at the battle of, or at the level of desires. The battle is at that level. So once God's grace brings something to the surface, like uses a stupid cookie to bring something to the surface, we have to own what it is. Ultimately, a lie about the character of God. Somehow he's not sufficient, or he's not glorious, or he's not good, or he's not gracious, or he's not fill in the blank. Whatever truth about God that you are not believing in that moment, you might say, how is not eating a cookie or eating a cookie have anything to do with God? And trust me, every decision you make has something to do with God. We're just not used to thinking that way. Daily repentance means abandoning the unbelief, and trusting again in the sufficiency and the beauty of Christ for you. Believing the gospel for eternal rescue and daily life. Jesus is everything that we cannot be. That's the gospel. He obeyed perfectly on our behalf. We know this as Christians. But do we see the connection between his obedience and his work on our behalf and our obedience? Make no mistake, Christian, this is a battle. And it is a battle that you will fight the rest of your time on planet Earth. The Christian life is a life of repentance. John Owen, in his book, Overcoming Sin and Temptation, says this. If you are fighting sin... You are alive. Take heart. But if sin holds sway unopposed, you are dead, no matter how lively this sin makes you feel. Take heart, embattled saint. We don't talk like that anymore, but I'm going to talk like that. Take heart, embattled saint. It's not rules that lead us to repentance. It's grace that teaches us to say no to sin. Rescuing grace empowers us to continually repent. Ask pattern number one and just sets the stage for everything else. Pattern number two, rescuing grace empowers us to intentionally obey. So I'm going to read verse, the end of verse 12 and add some context from 11. For the grace of God has appeared, training us, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So you read that, grace appears, training us to renounce and training us to live. We are not just continually repenting, we are intentionally obeying. And it's rescuing grace that leads to this pattern of life, self-control, upright, godly. Those are adverbs. All right, so it's been a while since you did the English thing. An adverb modifies a verb. So it describes an action. All three of those things describe our living, describe our Christian life. It's not the first time we've seen these 
right? These show up in the elder qualifications in chapter one. Self-control is laced all through the relationships that Paul talks about in the beginning of chapter two, and godliness is all through the letter. So this points to an intentional pattern of life. Recently, we've been watching a lot of Bear Grylls in our house. Uh, survival guy, you know, think what you want about the show. It's pretty fun to watch. Uh, one of the survival skills that he talks about on there is navigating with a compass. So uh, I've done some compass navigation in the real world. Uh, and one of the things you have to understand about a compass is you have to continually check the reading. So if you're navigating with a compass and you're not on a trail, you're not on a path, if you don't stop and check the reading and make sure you're going the right direction, you will end up off course. It's almost inevitable, right? You guys know how this works. Even if you're just a little bit off, by the time you go for a while, then you're not even going to get to the same destination. So the Christian life is kind of like navigating with a compass. The Bible points us where we need to go, shows us where we need to turn from our sin, shows us what a godly life looks like. The Bible acts as that reorienting device. Changing course is like continual repentance. Moving forward is like intentional obedience. So if you think about it, when you're navigating with a compass, you get, the, you get it out and you check and you say, oh, okay, we got to make sure we go that way. Hey, we should go that way. But you never move. There's, it, it doesn't help you at all. You actually have to not only know the right way to go, you actually have to physically walk it. Right? That's the rhythm of repentance and faith in the life of the Christian. You have to course correct, turn from your sin, and then you have to obey. You have to trust, and you move, you work, you act. So for those who are actively working to live a life of repentance and faith, which, by the way, should be Christians, rescuing grace empowers us to do that. That's what's such good news. You don't accidentally follow Jesus. You have to be intentional. You make time to pray. You read the Bible. You spend time with other Christians. You spend time with non-Christians. You speak the gospel to both. You gather with the church. You help others follow Jesus. So just think of one area of your life that you could be more intentional in than you are currently right now. We're simple humans, right? We can't handle too much. Think of one area that you could increase your intentionality. Kids, consider being intentional, obeying your parents. It's kind of like your one job. Have you given thought actually to that? Older folks, consider being intentional in prayer. You can probably do that in a way that the rest of us can't for the simple fact that you probably got a lot more wisdom than we do. If you find yourself somewhere in between, consider helping someone else follow Jesus. Just come alongside. Obedience matters for all of us, whether we're 8 or 88. doesn't matter. It's the beauty of the gospel. But obedience matters not because we're trying to make God like us more. Okay, so we've got to make sure we understand that, especially as, as kids. Uh, we've got to make sure we understand that we don't obey so that God loves us more. We obey because of what God has already given us 
in the gospel because of the grace that he's already given us. Romans 8.30 says this, those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Read that as God doesn't give up in the middle of his project. The death of Christ has not only paid for your rescue and your repentance, it's purchased your obedience. That's empowering grace. Rescuing grace empowers us to intentionally obey. And that's pattern number two, which brings us to the final pattern, pattern number three. Rescuing grace empowers us to expectantly wait. So we're continually repenting, intentionally obeying, expectantly waiting. Look at verse 13. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This isn't just a passive waiting. The participle waiting here has the idea of while you look forward to, while you are expectantly waiting. So it all happens together as the Christian life. It's a pattern of life, not just something that happens once. We are characterized by this expectant waiting. There's a settledness to our hope. Not a settledness in the way of uh, inactivity, like we're not doing anything because we saw we're in uh, the middle of a battle, okay? A settledness in the hope of fighting the battle with the return of Christ in mind. That's our blessed hope. So, when you feel like the battle is not worth it, when you grow weary of continual repentance, when you seem to be the only one trying to do what is right, when we, church, might be tempted to bend with the cultural tides, hold fast to our blessed hope, hold fast to the grace that doesn't just rescue us but empowers us. If you've ever helped a kid across the monkey bars, you know they're going to make it. (laughs) I got you. You're going to make it. But they don't always know that or feel that. In fact, sometimes they're working hard and they're not sure they're going to make it. God's grace in the Christian life is like that for us. He's holding us. We will make it to the other side. It's his grace that keeps us secure. Rescuing grace empowers us to wait expectantly. Grace has appeared, verse 11. Glory will appear, verse 13. It will be unlike anything we could even imagine. This seems to be the, one of the few places in the New Testament where Jesus is directly referred to as God, as Theos. Usually, the deity of Christ is, is taught in other ways, not such a direct connection in the New Testament, but here it's just our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, and that's going to be glory, like we can't even imagine. Brothers and sisters, there is an end to our striving. But that end is not a place. It's a person. 
that end to our striving is Christ himself, our blessed hope, who will appear. Christ himself, verse 14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, ungodliness, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Verse 14 is the rescuing grace that appeared in verse 11. This is substitutionary atonement. Jesus died in our place. He died to rescue us, to make us clean, to make us his people. We belong to him. So that we can be passionate, says zealous. You think of a zealot, you think of a person who's crazy. For what? For good works, for godly living. How do we commend the gospel? Godly living. How do we live godly? Rescuing grace that empowers. I love the connections that Paul is making here. And these, this verse 14 rings of the whole Bible story. Exodus 19, 5, 1 Peter 2, 9, Ezekiel 37, 23, and we could list a host of others. And then Paul goes right into verse 15 and says to Titus, declare these things. Everything I've just been talking about, the sounders of doctrine that you could possibly declare, speak that in the context of the church and for those who don't yet know Jesus. Declare these things. That word for declare is the same word in verse 1 that is teach. It kind of brackets this section. What's funny is the word is actually to speak. So in both ways, it's to speak the good news of the gospel so that people will come to faith in Christ. That's how you grow in Christ too. <laughs> That's why Paul says to Titus, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. So he's tying all of what he said to Titus so far. You need to be declaring the gospel. You need to be encouraging the saints. You need to be rebuking those who are contrary to sound doctrine. And he needs to do this with all authority, letting no one disregard him because this is how much is at stake for the church. This is how important this connection between rescuing grace and empowering grace is. Because empowering grace makes us compelling. If we stop at rescuing grace, we're just religious. So these are the three patterns of the Christian life empowered by rescuing grace. We continually repent, we intentionally obey, and we expectantly wait. And I'll close with this quote from Mr. Chester. He writes, grace does not simply prepare us for the future age by saving us from God's judgment. Grace also shapes our lives in the present. The gospel is good news for the last day, but it is also good news for the next day. Oh man, that's what we need. We need rescuing grace that empowers us for godly 